Welcome to episode four of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosin story. I'm your host, Glenn Gordon. Place your uh, radio work in terms of, of starting a family and being with Amanda. That's yes. Stuff. Well, it is all connected because with these radio stations changing hands and changing frequencies so often, I always wanted to be a dad. It was really important to me. Amanda was keen to start a family as well. And we just thought that the radio in New Zealand at that time might not be the best place to be in terms of bringing in a steady income. And and particularly given the way that I left the uh, airport radio station. I mean, we got the payout and then I did find some more work, but there was a bit of a gap there. So it it got us to thinking about where do we want to be? And it also got me thinking about what do I want from life? So I decided I should be able to do some radio part-time, but that I would like to get into a situation where I can help make a difference to other blind people. I suppose one of the, again, blessings and potential pitfalls in my life is that there are a number of things I really enjoy doing and a number of things employers have very kindly over the years told me I'm good at. So I'm often faced with choices about what do I do with this next phase of my life. So I began working with the Foundation for the Blind in New Zealand but I also did part-time radio on the oldie station. And again, that was a crazy time because I would do Monday to Friday at the foundation. And then I would do um, breakfast on Saturday morning. I think I did 6 a.m. to midday on there. And then I would go back and I would do 6 p.m. to midnight on Sunday night with a good old-fashioned request show. That was super cool. I loved doing that. But again, it just meant that life was pretty full on. But it meant that we had a buffer against the madness of radio, that I was able to pursue my interest in blindness issues, and that um, it was time to start a family. And in 1994, Amanda got pregnant, and we were just so over the moon. I mean, it was just... um, a moment that we'd been waiting for. It took a while, actually. Uh, so she she was pregnant. Uh, I was just getting a, a new job, which I'm sure we'll come to in the government relations field, which was a huge turning point in my life. And it felt like everything was coming together. Got a new guide dog. And then Amanda had a miscarriage. And ouch! it was um, it was really, really tough. It was... Um, People view these things differently, but for us, even though Amanda miscarried at nine weeks, for us, it it represented all our hopes and dreams, our new family just starting, and then it was gone. And uh, I did my best to be really supportive. We got closer as a result. But it was tough. I remember just really strange things happening, like somehow we wandered in. When we went to the NFB convention in 1995, we were just wandering around the massive malls. That convention was in Chicago. And um, we went to this big American shopping mall. We thought that that was pretty impressive. We ended up in this baby 
sort of place that sold toys and things like that. And um, I just stood there sobbing my heart out. It was really awful. It was just, and, and quite spontaneous and embarrassing as well. It really shook us up, but it did mean that when Heidi came along in 1996, it was even more special. It's it's interesting because it's nearly 25 years ago, and I can I can tell that this this still takes a profound emotional toll just when you're talking about it. Yeah, it does. Seventh of September, I remember the anniversary every every year, and I I uh, take a bit of pause and and think. Um, yeah, it it's it was a rough time, but we saw we we saw each other through together and what was interesting about that time was how many people told us that they had also experienced miscarriages and the effects that it had had on them and um, what it taught me was that sometimes if you do talk about these things in your life the things that some people choose not to talk about it's amazing how friendships can emerge or how a new dimension to a friendship can emerge did you um have any qualms about talking about it? Did you think twice? Uh, not really. Uh, because unfortunately, I'm the kind of person that does tend to wear my hat on my sleeve a bit. So it was pretty obvious. Um, I, I was guide dog training at the time and um, finding it very hard to complete it because that meant being away from Amanda during the day. And all I wanted to do was just be there and hold her close, really. So um, it was very clear that I was upset. So it wasn't something I was going to find easy to keep under wraps. We uh, obviously are not going to talk about all the details of your relationship with Amanda, but how did you guys work out your uh, relative roles around the house and in the relationship, both uh, before and, and after kids? Well, I think that in some ways was a bit of a sore point. I remember when I got together with Amanda and there was a, a teacher who I was very close to, who I really respected, and, and she was always very patient with me. It was a great relationship when you have a kind of a mentor like that in your life. One of the things that she obviously either didn't understand or chose to ignore and that I have learned over the years is that you can't tell anyone anything when they're in love. It doesn't matter whether they're in love and having an affair or in love with somebody who might not be good for you or whatever. Any logic just goes out the window. When I fell in love with Amanda, it was just one of those crazy teenage experiences where everything was just on a massive high and I wasn't eating when she wasn't around and it was just madness. And during that period, she took it upon herself to say to me, uh, I don't think that this is necessarily a good idea because, you know, you, you're clearly heading into a space where you are going to be living together and you're not really equipped for that because you've come from a family where you have a lot of people around and understandably it's easier for people to have done things for you. And when you have five children and two parents and often an extended family member, you know, I, I've, we had grandparents living with us from time to time as well. When you have that many people to feed, 
the food just has to get on the table in the most efficient way. And and when there's that much washing to do, I mean, practical things like that. Plus, my mum is from a generation where, you know, she just does everything for everybody. It, it, she sort of sees it as, as that that's her function. And so in a way, if I were to go in there and, and, and intervene, it would be an affront in some way. And um, hopefully that's not sounding too much like an excuse. But the bottom line is that I did not have a lot of skills in areas like cooking. And it doesn't mean that I wouldn't survive or anything, but it's just it wasn't my forte. And when you're totally blind, you don't learn by sight, clearly. You've got to learn by example. Somebody's got to sort of physically take you in hand and show you these things. And I went straight from high school to university and maybe I should have taken a gap year and uh, done some sort of course in the techniques of daily living or whatever. Like, But I took my gap year for radio in the end. So that's a long-winded way of saying I was useless at certain functions. And it understandably caused some tension because there are things that I simply couldn't do on account of blindness, like transport people around and things like that. But there were things I could have done that I didn't do, partly, I think, because maybe I was a little bit chauvinistic given the environment I'd come from, but also partly because I just didn't know how. I felt at the time that my contribution was bringing in some pretty good money for somebody of my age and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, providing for us. But when the kids came along, I like to think I was a, a really good dad, actually. My kids are my proudest achievement. Anything else I've done in my life just pales into insignificance compared to those four wonderful people. And so I would spend a lot of time with them. I would change them, read to them and get up in the night. And I was doing government. (laughs) I was doing government relations by then. It was a very intense role. And um, one day I was sitting down with a number of people, including the prime minister at a table in parliament and I said, I'm really sorry if I'm a little bit out of it today, but my daughter kept me awake half the night last night. And someone said, how old is your daughter? And I said, six weeks. And they made sympathetic noises. One of the politicians said, it's okay. My daughter kept me up until past midnight last night. I said, oh, no, how old is she? And he said, He's eight. she's 18. <laughs> so, <laughs> different reasons yeah. to keep you up. It never changes. So... Um, I've always been very involved in my children's lives, uh, read them a lot, and um, as I say, changed them, helped them with schoolwork, done a lot of fun things. But yes, I mean, when you're in that kind of uh, blindsided combination, mum becomes um, taxi service and, and running people around and doing a lot of things. And I am just so, so fortunate that Amanda's the mum of, of our four children because she's just amazing she's she's been a brilliant mum was your relationship such that these topics came up for you to discuss yes and and i think the thing is especially when i was doing the government relations role it was a very stressful high profile quite intense job and we'd made the decision before the children were born that because amanda is a school teacher so we made the decision that whichever of us was earning the least when the kids were born, would bow out of the workforce. We both felt strongly that children needed a full-time parent. That's, you know, I realize not everybody agrees with that, and that's fine, but that was our position. So 
we decided whichever of us was earning the least would become a full-time parent. And at the time, it happened to be her, so she became the full-time parent. But I would have just as easily loved to have stayed at home full-time when the kids were pre-school age. I would have loved that. These things would come up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a symptom, I think, of just life on the fast track. You know, I was still in my mid-20s by this stage. So things had happened very fast for me. I know it's obvious, but as someone who didn't have kids, it wasn't obvious to me. And that is that blindness to your kids was absolutely normal. They they knew it, even though they didn't know it, but they knew it, you know, from ever since they were born. You know, recently I celebrated my 50th birthday and Bonnie organized a wonderful show on Mushroom FM in the Mosin Explosion slot where people were leaving reflections, including Amanda, which was fantastic. And um, all four kids talked about me being a dad and what it was like. And they reminded me of so many wonderful things. We went to Disneyland, like, last month. We did. We've all gone to Disneyland slash World with Dad at one yeah. point, haven't well, we? Well, I mean, that's just you who went to Disney World. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> that's why I included it, though, because, I mean, I guess I have been to Disneyland with yeah, Dad. But. Yeah, but <laughs> you were, like, very little when yeah. you went to Disneyland. Yeah, that was that was a cool time. Uh, with most of us, he went, we, we went when we were, like, 11, so we yeah. could get there a bit cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you hit 12, you have to pay adult airfares. Yeah. We- so 11 was like the sweet spot where we'd have all the good memories and stuff, but it wouldn't cost as much. Yeah. <laughs> so we've all had that nice experience with that. And mm. I feel like we all had like slightly different experiences as well. Because like, I remember like with me, like we, when we went, we, we were like, Obsessed with the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. That was the big thing. But like for you, Heidi, it was like the it was the, the tiki, tiki room. room. We loved the tiki room. We like went in there like five times. Yeah, it's not even like a ride. It's just like an entertainment in thing. And yeah, but we loved it. Yeah, yeah with me and Dad, um, it was the teacups that we went on the most. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not sure if he loved it, it's because I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you like, Nicola? Um, I liked the haunted mansion. Oh, yeah, that was a oh, cool so one. Oh, different. That's cool. I heard that they turned the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror into the Guardians of the Galaxy thing. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, it's because it's cause no one knows what the Twilight Zone is, even though they've revived it. Huh. Yeah, well, it, it was good. I don't know. The thing is, like, when, when you've got, like, your parents and stuff, you know, there's such, a, like, a big part of your life that it's sort of hard to, like, pluck out an individual story without yeah. prompting, isn't it? I mean, there's always the great stories of getting used to people's parents not being blind, and you're like... Oh. Wait, wait, your dad's not blind? Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, your dad can't read Braille? That's weird. Yeah. yeah. Didn't, didn't you have a thing with that, Heidi, when you were, like, really little? Yeah, um, I think dad was, we had those books that had the Braille, but they had the pictures as well. Yeah, they were nice. And um, I don't know what book we were reading, but it had a picture of the dad reading to the kid, and he was reading print and not Braille. I was like, why is that daddy not reading Braille? Because <laughs> mum's read print, dad's read Braille. That, that's how it works, that works right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, and you wanted to get a Braille book for your friend's dad, didn't you? But... Yes, that's right. For their birthday, a Braille book so their dad could read it. But yeah. yeah I really like those Braille books, though. <laughs> They're good. We're still got a box of them upstairs. We do. Yeah. I, I don't think we ever got rid of any of them. I feel like some of them got a bit melted, though. I think we may have got rid of the really melted ones, because we had that... How did that happen? We had the play, We had that upstairs playroom oh, in mean, Wanganui, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we had them all on this bookshop, but the sun came in through the window, I think, yeah. and it like started melting the... Plastic yeah, before, for the brow. before people knew how to make plastic that didn't like just melt in the sun. <laughs> yeah. 
diagnosed with the days. Oh, and do you guys remember how um, Dad used to read us stories every night? Even like when he was like out of the country, would have like Skype yeah. calls or, or and he'd read re- us a chapter. He'd record of a book. them sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, like the the six Harry Potter. I remember was that. Yeah, I think you had like all the Harry Potters, but I was only really old enough to get into it when you were up to the sixth one. Yeah, something like and, that. And um, what yeah. was it the, the 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 fairy tales? But they're like remix to be like. Different and funnier. Yeah, I I, I do seem to remember that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I've, I feel like maybe they were written by like Roald Dahl. Or, did he do something yeah, like that? Did. Yeah, he did. Something yeah. like that. I remember like Little Red Riding Hood and yeah, yeah. Then I remember the stories Dad used to make up. Yeah, and oh. this is one I really vividly remember, and Dad doesn't at all. But he told me that when he was a little boy, one day he <laughs> fell asleep in the bath and yeah, got really wrinkled up one. like a prune, right? Yeah. And so his family took him down to the local chip factory where they made like the thin cut chips and rolled him out flat again. Oh, yeah, that's right. When they turned the the crinkle the, cut chips into the into, into the, the smooth cut. Uh, I also remember uh, one time when he came to Wanganui and he took us out to dinner, and we mm. had to walk there. We went to breakers yeah. and then on the way back we got there and he's like oh no i i don't have the key to get back in because no one else is home we we're like oh damn what are we doing he yep. sat down we were so worried yeah we were so worried and we sit down he sits on the step and he tells us about although uh when he was a when he was a boy his his father taught him the uh the accio charm and he told us about how he learned the accio charm and then he just says accio key and he pulls the key and we're like whoa <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was just very annoyed by that i think <laughs> I was like, oh, come on. We were so worried. Locked <laughs> <laughs> out of the oh, house. It's getting dark. Oh, we're just little. <laughs> yeah. Like, a lot of my memories, are, like, good memories, they're still just little everyday memories as well. Yeah. Like, I really enjoy going tech shopping with Dad. Like, that, mm. that's, like, what we do together. And that's <laughs> great. And then, like, we used to watch all these Apple events together and we'd get up at ridiculous hours of the morning and sit and watch them together and... <laughs> Oh, get yeah. excited and complain and like um when he was really hyped on the telethon and we all camped out in the lounge oh, I remember the, the telethon. telethon yeah we went in for like the first little bit yeah we went yeah. into the most of it was in Auckland I think it was or yeah, Christchurch there was some in the St James Theatre yeah but He's there was some in Wellington it. so we went in and we um sat in for some of that and yeah and we came back and we camped out in the lounge so we watched the telethon yeah, it, so good. It was good. And they were giving out free like vitamin water. I feel like they were giving out free energy drinks, but we weren't allowed. Yeah, any no, they we're... gave us vitamin water, but mm. we weren't allowed that either. Like we got it, but then they're like, "Oh, maybe we don't want you drinking that." We're like, "Oh, okay." <sighs> yeah, all, right. all right, we won't. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. It's we won't drink it. Winky face. That must have been very shortly after we moved here to Wellington. Yeah, I was nine at the time. Yeah, I remember that because that was the weekend I got my first cell phone. Oh, I lost that cell phone in the end. I remember Richard, my oldest son, he used to take my hand and put it on the TV screen when he was really particularly excited about a TV program because he thought that that was was how he could show it to me. What's also really nice is that my kids are also quite passionate defenders when they need to be. There was something that came up a few years ago where a teacher in social studies mentioned to my youngest son, David, that blind people shouldn't be allowed to vote because they can't possibly know what's going on. David, he's got, he's inherited my profound sense of justice and outrage over injustice. So he got up there and he said, my dad has stood for parliament twice. He's totally blind and he's one of the most politically aware people I know. (laughs) It really shut the teacher up. (laughs) Is it New Zealand? 
that would allow someone to, you know, to get away with saying that? I mean, that that's something that I think would, would largely be unheard of in public settings in the United States. It doesn't mean people don't believe it. It just means they don't say it. Would it would be very unusual for someone to say that here. And, and you know, if, if it was important enough, again, you've got to pick your battles, right? But um, we, yeah. we could take somebody to the Human Rights Commission in a position like being a teacher for saying that. But as I say, sometimes you just have to let things go or you'd be just constantly fighting. You can't be constantly fighting. You uh, mentioned a strand, and that was that you had guide dogs. I had no idea you were a dog user. Yes. I got my one and only guide dog, whose name was Pearl, in 1994, just before I started my government relations role. I remember standing in a line at an airport not long afterwards with Pearl, and this woman came up to me. She had a very sort of snooty voice, and she said, what's your dog's name? I said, she's called Pearl. And she said, a black dog called Pearl? Isn't that a bit of a misnomer? And I said, don't you realize black pearls are some of the most valuable pearls in the world? It's obvious that you don't fly business class. (laughs) But she's just so snooty about it. Pearl was a household name, of course, because of my my role. And uh, I remember... There was a a minister, a a cabinet minister, like what Americans would call a cabinet secretary, who was in real strife. I think it was over something like using a cell phone on a plane or something stupid like that. Uh, He was under siege and being told he should resign and this sort of thing. And I got on the plane with Pearl and he said to me, good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Pearl. And I said, that's really impressive, minister, because most people remember Pearl's name, but they don't remember mine. And he took this big breath of the whole, the whole plane was listening to us both by this stage. He took this deep inhalation and he said, never get into politics, Jonathan, or people will think you're the dog. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Pearl was wonderful. And, and we had a great relationship. She was very, very cute. But one day Amanda was out and I heard this clattering sound from the bathroom of all places in our house. I went into the bathroom and there was Pearl flat on her back having a seizure. And I didn't know it was a seizure because I'd never had, I'd never experienced anything like this before. And I thought maybe she had swallowed something and was choking. I was trying to free her airway, check her airway, do some first aid. And she was biting and growling and it was just a horrible thing. And I I called um, Amanda on her cell phone and said, I think, I think Pearl might be dying. I was panicking. It turns out that she had epilepsy and um, they offered to give me another dog. We had a, um, a fantastic guide dog instructor who was just incredibly droll and would say the most outrageous things. And one time, even before this came up, she said, it's only a work tool. If it dies, we'll get you another one, which is terrible. <laughs> but, um, so sentimental. <laughs> yeah. But um, so they said, well, We'll give you another dog because you're in obviously a a critical role and you can't really afford to have a dog who might have a seizure. And I couldn't do it. I I said, look, let's try and medicate, um, do what we can because I can't give her up. I'd got too attached. So we we, managed to medicate, but she got really ravenous as a result. And so every so often I would have a bit of an embarrassment where she'd like lunge at food or something. But by and (laughs) large, she was a wonderful, wonderful dog and – and the kids loved her too. 
She probably loved buffets. Yeah, yeah. You know, she knew about applause and about cameras and everything after a while because of all the stuff I had been doing. I remember I took her to a concert of Mazulski's pictures at an exhibition. And every time the audience would applaud, she'd jump up and sort of strut up and down the aisle as far as her leash would allow because she thought they were they were introducing us, you know, her and me. She would just know about cameras and, and um, walk up to film cameras and think she's a pretty smart dog, actually. But you only had one dog. Well... And I'm, I'm curious, was it a conscious decision not to get oh, another? Oh, yes, because by the time Pearl retired, which would have been in about the end of 2003, I was working for Pulse Data, which later became Humanware, and I was doing a lot of overseas travel. It's quite a complex business to get a dog back into the country again when you've gone out. Also, a lot of long-haul flights. Sometimes I'm on plane, or I have been on planes for 13 or more hours at a time, and I made the decision that once in a while, that's fine. You know, you can manage the dog's water intake and do all that sort of thing. The frequency with which I was doing it, I just felt it was a little bit inhumane for me to put a dog through that. Did you find that there were things that Pearl did much better than you could ever possibly do with a cane? Yes. Yes, there's a, a fluidity of travel with a guide dog. But like everything, I think there are actually pluses and minuses. And I know the guide dog advocates don't often talk about the minuses. The minuses are that you miss out on a lot of information about what's around in your environment because the dog is just so gracefully weaving you around everything. So that's not necessarily a, a good or a bad thing. It's just an observation. But yes, I when I was going into a lot of unfamiliar buildings, as I was in my government relations role, I felt a degree of confidence that I could get in. And and she was a great icebreaker in the government relations gig as well. You know, if I was going into a difficult situation where I was holding the line on a controversial position, then she would break the ice, which was always good. Although I do remember one occasion where I'd had a pretty long and difficult meeting and I decided I would go to a pizza hut. I did consume that stuff back then. And I went into the Pizza Hut, and the guy there said, um, you can't bring that dog in here. I, I said, it's a it's a guide dog. You have to allow her, and it's the law, and I produced my little card. And he said, okay, well, I'll put you in table three where we can keep an eye on you. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I said, it's, it's okay. We'll, we'll find our pizza somewhere else. Forward, Pearl, I said, ready to stride out of the restaurant and she actually led me straight into the kitchen so let's let's go back to your uh government relations work was that the first job you had once you uh you went into the the blindness field no my first job was called a service advisor and this was a really important role for me because i was meeting people who either were just entering the blindness system because they'd been given a diagnosis of blindness. You know, 80% of blind people are over the age of 65 and they become blind because of conditions like age-related maculopathy and um, sometimes diabetes, that sort of thing. Or they may have, uh, they, they may just need some new blindness services and have been in the system for a long time. But it exposed me to a variety of perspectives on blindness that I had been completely oblivious to. And it was a really important component of my maturing and, and education. Because for me, blindness wasn't really 
any big deal. And I met people, now I still remember two things. I remember a man who had suffered some awful things in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and he'd gone on to live a, a successful life. But the blindness, it was the finishing of him. And I also remember a nun who was in her 90s, and she went to sleep fully sighted and woke up totally blind. And for the first time in her life, she started to question her faith and wondered what purpose God was possibly serving by inflicting this on her at this late stage. And I I was really moved, and it stopped me from being so prescriptive and arrogant about what blindness means to different people. And I'm so glad I had that uh, about 18 months in that role, dealing with a wide range of real people, going to their houses, seeing the way that often family members would stifle my efforts to give these people rehabilitation and and, and independence again and some dignity back because these well-meaning people would say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. I'll do that for you. And I learned that I had to really carefully say to them, you know, none of us is getting any younger, which of course was difficult for me to say because I was like 23 or something. But (laughs) what, you know, you weren't getting younger. This is true. I wasn't. But I would say to them, um, you know, what, what might happen if you're not around for some reason? Don't we need to think about how we can provide for that eventuality? And it was a really sobering role to do. But you did not necessarily have the life skills to offer the emotional support. Well, I suppose... Well, I'm stating that as if it's obvious, but it may not be true. I suppose it depends on what you consider the skills required to be to offer emotional support. Do you need to... Is it about how many years you've lived on the planet, or is it about empathy? Is it about kind of tuning into someone else's feelings and and pain and and where they're at and getting on that wavelength? And I found that I was able to do that. I think also, even though I was young and totally blind since birth, me turning up as a totally blind person to their house and just sitting and having a cup of tea with them and taking the time to talk, it meant something to them. And, and and I would often patiently answer a lot of basic how-do-you questions. That makes good sense. The, the thing that had come to mind that caused me to phrase, phrase things as I did was, you were born blind. You knew exactly you know, what this life was. And here's someone who essentially has lost something. And that, that part, I was thinking, would feel unfamiliar. I suppose one of the things that has helped me in my life when I've remembered to do it, when I've been in, in, in a good enough place to do it, is when I'm communicating with someone, I often try and go a little bit deeper. And, and this, this, I think, comes from the work I had already done as an interviewer. And I try to think, where is this coming from? You know, if, if somebody's angry with me or, or, or saying something, I try, you know, and I don't always succeed because I'm, fallible and can get angry myself but i try and think what's deeper than this where where is this emotion coming from and so i would often think about what is it like for this individual right now how does their 
how does their experience differ from mine? And I did get a lot of mentoring in, in this role. You know, some people who'd been doing it a lot longer than me, who were very patient with me. And I think I've been fortunate in that. I have had people at various stages in my life who've sort of seen something raw and taken the time to develop. And I guess on the flip side, I've been willing to admit when I don't know what I don't know. Which is often quite hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't particularly see any um, expression of weakness in telling someone you don't know something. Um, it, it's, it's far better to do that than to make an idiot of yourself assuming that you know something. <laughs> exactly, and they'll, they'll know yeah. anyway. During the time you were in this role, were you still part of the with Na- National Association of uh, Blind Citizens, the advocacy group? Yes, I was. I was chairing, I think, actually. I was. I think I was chairing the Auckland branch by then. So that was another pretty quick rise. Was there any conflict between the Auckland branch there and the work that you did? Sometimes there was. When I look back on it now, I kind of think, you know, if I'm, if I'm chief executive of an organization where I have staff members who are also so vocally involved with a sort of a pressure group, I might feel uncomfortable with that. But then in a way, maybe not, because essentially that's what a union is. And I strongly believe in the right for people to organize and and form unions. So it's an interesting one. But I, I know that it sometimes could create tensions because I would have this leadership role in the association and that would have me meeting sometimes with the regional manager of the foundation, the service provider in that capacity. And she would have to accept that um, I was carrying the expressions of, of the collective, but also she was my boss in another context. That was very common back then in blindness politics in New Zealand. But when I think about it now, I can understand why it may have caused some consternation among the leadership of the foundation at times. It almost feels like your government advocacy role was more in harmony with your presidency of the (laughs) chapter. Yes. What happened was that there was a pretty good period of dialogue at this point um, between the foundation and the association. Things were ticking along quite nicely. Relations in blindness politics in New Zealand have been quite cyclical in this regard, like sort of an economic cycle, boom and bust. And we were going through a very long boom period in the 90s. And what had happened was that the foundation and the association jointly funded a position called the National Advocate. The concept of this was that both organizations had a mutual interest in having someone in Wellington, New Zealand's capital, rattling the chain and advancing advocacy causes that were important to all blind people. So that was jointly funded. And that experiment sort of ran out. I think it was about a two or three year thing. And so then the foundation, the service provider, decided that it would create a role. I think they first actually called it government liaison advisor. And I got them to change it to manager government relations eventually. And it was earmarked, everybody thought, for a specific individual who'd done the national advocate role before. It was kind of like a slam dunk. And I remember one of the senior managers in the foundation saying to me at the time, and and a mentor of mine saying to me, don't bother applying because they're not going to give it to you. This one's all wrapped up. And I thought, well, why not? I'd, I'd already stood for parliament once by then. I was known as somebody who 
was able to hold my own in a particular in a political environment. I'd done the political interviewing, so I had the networks, and I thought, why shouldn't I put my name in for this? So I decided to apply, and just after I applied, <laughs> Amanda got a speeding camera offence. Now, Amanda and I both owned the vehicle. It was in our joint name, sort of joint matrimonial property. What I didn't know was that when you do that, you get allocated a driver's license number, even if you don't have a driver's license, sort of in the eventuality that, you know, clearly you own a vehicle, so you're likely to want a license, and so they just allocate your number in case you get your license. So when the speeding camera offence came in the mail, it was addressed to me. And I thought, whoa, there's an opportunity here because they obviously want somebody in this government relations role who can work the media. And this is a chance. This is like manna from heaven, man. I, I can prove that I can work the media. So I whipped up a press release. Blind man gets speeding camera fine and sent it out to all these media organizations. Well, I mean, this thing went this thing went viral before we knew what going viral was. And I was getting calls from Australia and, you know, all the TV networks here, of course, and the radio, but also Australia and Amman, Jordan, and all over the place, these, these media outlets all around the world that I've never heard of were calling me about the blind person who got the speeding camera fine. And it was just ridiculous. And in the end, Amanda got really annoyed. And she said, now the whole world knows that I got the, the, the speeding camera fine. But anyway, it was just so good because it, it proved that I could really work the media when the need arose. And so I, they, they gave me an interview with the HR person. In retrospect, I sort of think, I wonder if I, I might have almost lost the role by being flippant or whether she appreciated my sense of humor because she said, you know, this is a stressful job. What do you do to relax? And I said, well, I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I enjoy a nice bottle of wine while listening to Sergeant Pepper. And again, you see, she left a silence there. And I felt I had to fill it. It was just like Paul Holmes said. So I said, actually, <laughs> Sergeant Pepper goes <laughs> A lot better with LSD, but I can't find a decent supplier. <laughs> and um, But anyway, she put me forward to the final round, and Amanda put this amazing presentation together, like a sort of a cartoon thing of all these skills that I brought to the position. And um, the chief executive afterwards said, look, it wasn't so much what you said, it was what you left behind. So I have Amanda to thank for that amazing uh, presentation thing that we we then made available in alternative formats in braille and in print and left it there and they gave me the job and um, people said at the time the board I think said to the chief executive this is a very brave appointment and you know exactly what people are thinking when they tell you you've made a brave appointment um, I think people thought I was going to be a bit brash difficult to control unpredictable but I got the job, and um, so I, at the age of 25, was catapulted on to the senior management team of the organization and was basically the spokesperson on blindness issues in the government sphere. It was, it was a very big deal to put a very, a very young person in a role like that. Not only that, if you have a shoe-in candidate, it's often hard to disabuse people of those notions. Yes. So you must have you must have done something and right. He was very generous and magnanimous, and actually helped with my induction and, and introducing me to people and things. I'm I'm very very grateful for 
for the the absolutely gentlemanly way that he managed that. For a while, I did go through this phase, and I, I think there's a name for it. There's a name for everything, but I did go through this phase where I thought, oh, man, they're going to wake up one morning and realize they put the wrong person in here. But I was very, very fortunate that I had a massive success really quickly with the with the copyright legislation. And once I delivered on that, then I really won everybody's confidence, and it was much easier then. Was the copyright legislation your idea or theirs? It was. The idea of, um, again, Mary Schneckenberg and uh, Clive Lansing, Mary ran the library for a long time uh, in New Zealand and is an internationally recognized figure, and, and so was Clive in his area. And before I got there, they had come up with this concept, which was that access to information shouldn't really be treated any differently from access to public buildings that if the information is published, then it should be a matter of right that it should be accessible and a special format provider or an alternative format provider should not need to go and seek the permission of the copyright holder to make that material accessible. And there were situations where copyright holders around the world would refuse to make their material available on Talking Book or in Braille. It was a work in progress and then I started this uh, advocacy campaign, working the phones, uh, talking to, you know, what, what, what people often don't realize with government relations work is if you can win the public servants over, the people who make the recommendations to the politicians, that's often a lot more effective than lobbying the politicians directly. The politicians have got so much to deal with, they're thinking political things and blindness stuff is generally small fry. So if you can work with the public servants first, I did a lot of that work, got the concepts sort of in train there and it was seriously gaining momentum. We had an amendment before parliament. And then one day I was sitting in my office. It was a very nice office. It was a corner one. And uh, I got a phone call. You yes, indeed. <laughs> I got a phone call from the person who at that stage was representing the authors and publishers. I think they had some sort of authors and publishers association. And he was angry. And he said, listen, Mr. Mosin, do you steal from everybody or is it only authors that have the privilege of having stuff stolen from them? He felt that intellectual property in the end was the the gift of the intellectual property holder and that no one had the right to impose what happens to someone's intellectual property. And so, again, I put myself in his position and thought, well, I can understand. If you've created this book, it's your baby, and you don't want to lose control of anything that happens to it. And I said, look, I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm here to ensure that all blind people can read the material that they want to be able to read, just like sighted people can. If you like, I can propose an alternative arrangement. And that alternative arrangement would be you absolutely retain control as authors and publishers of your intellectual property. But just as the developer of a public building is required to invest to make their buildings accessible to the public, you will be required to pay to have alternative versions produced of all your material. And he said, but that could cost an enormous amount of money. And I said, absolutely. So what do you choose? So he backed down and we got the legislation through. 
Subsequent to the copyright law in New Zealand passing, there was a lot of interest from overseas about how we did it and what we did. And so I talked to a number of organizations, including NFB, about how we did what we did. Yeah, I actually researched that before we talked today because I couldn't believe that the United States was in the same position until relatively recently. Lo and behold, you you were yes, correct. Yes, I remember sitting down with Jim Gashel, um, who was the director of government, governmental affairs for NFB at that stage, um, talking about the principles and um, how we had successfully advocated. And eventually the Chafee Amendment came along. But to the best of my knowledge, we broke new ground doing this in 1994. It's something I'm very proud of because it led ultimately, of course, to the Marrakesh Treaty. And sadly, I was seeking to get the support of other organizations, including NFB, by the way, for a Marrakesh Treaty type thing, a, a, a treaty that would be put together through the World Intellectual Property Organization. And at the time, there was no interest in that at all uh, from many organizations. Sometimes you just have to wait and your time eventually comes. And I'm thrilled that that little seed we planted back in 1994 has led to the Marrakesh Treaty now. So did you have a whole agenda of political areas to focus on that, that got hand, handed down from the, you know, <laughs> the higher-ups of the organization? To some degree, but when I took the role, what I said to the foundation was, I didn't want to do anything that I felt didn't have the mandate of the blind community at large. So... I would have a loose coalition that I would get together of various blindness organizations, and I would tap the pulse, find out what they were thinking about, what issues were bothering them. And I would also talk about legislative initiatives I knew might be coming and discuss with them how we might handle it. And we saw a number of threats off in a particularly right-wing environment as a result of that very close coordination and the blind community singing from the same song sheet because it is a very difficult thing if you go to government and another organization in the blindness space is saying something else and they throw up their hands in horror because we're such a tiny minority and they say, when you blind people get it together and tell us what you want, come back to us with one voice. And because we spent so much time coordinating, we were able to do that. One of the really big changes that I got through, and it was probably the most publicly controversial thing I did, was an amendment to the Juries Act. The Juries Act was very ambiguous about whether blind people could actually be on juries or not. It said something like, um, the following people may not serve on a jury, and there was this long list. And then towards the end of the list, it said, persons who are incapable of serving because of blindness, deafness, and physical infirmity. Well, some people argued it doesn't say that no blind person can serve on a jury. It only says that blind people who are incapable of serving can't. And of course, this act was written all the way back in 1908, when I think it was just naturally assumed, if you're blind, you can't serve on a jury. And that is how traditionally the justice system had interpreted the act. So I took it on and decided we needed to get some clarity. And it was surprisingly controversial. You know, it really got people angry. The idea that this young blind radical was on TV uh, having a bit of argy-bargy with a very prominent Queen's Council lawyer, actually, uh, talking about how 
there should be situations where blind people can serve on a jury. And the Minister of Justice was staunchly opposed. And, you know, I would turn on talk radio and hear people raving on and saying, you know, that Mosin is just completely, what are these blind young radicals? And so it was one of those simple issues that galvanized the public in either direction. Did they not believe in blind justice at the time? <laughs> apparently not. As Arlo Guthrie would say, a typical case of American blind justice. No, they, they apparently didn't. What, what was the logic? What was the logic that blind people would be less capable of serving than others? Facial expressions of the defendant and witnesses, photographic evidence that would be presented to back up a case. Those were basically the objections. To what do you attribute the ability to actually get it through? Patience. It's really hard in a role like that when you really believe with all your heart that there's an injustice here, but other people aren't there yet. And you just have to accept it. You know, there's no point in getting angry about the way the world is. You've got to try and find a way forward and change the world. And you're not going to change it by just getting angry. So I made a lot of submissions. I called in to the talk shows whenever I could when I heard this issue being discussed and tried to put the case that a jury is made up of one's peers. And let's say, for example, and I use this example, that there was a case involving firearms and you had 11 sighted people on the jury who could see the gun, the evidence, any photographs, but didn't know a thing about firearms. And then you had a 12th person on the jury, totally blind, perhaps due to an accident or, or whatever, but who had knowledge of weaponry. I mean, perhaps they, they're a veteran, something like that. But whatever the cause, maybe they had a lot of knowledge of firearms. Who was the most valuable member on that jury? The fact that they couldn't see the evidence was really not particularly relevant because you had 11 people who could, and that would therefore be considered as part of the equation that led to a verdict. And ultimately, that patient explanation in multiple forums meant that we eventually got an amendment that clarified the position. That's a great example. But it's not one that would immediately spring to mind for me in as cogent a way as you put it. Was it a lightning bolt for you, or is it just obvious, that kind of argument? When you start a campaign like this, like a political campaign, you have to strategize. You have to think about what are the roadblocks I might come across and how will I overcome them. And so I knew when I took this on that there would be these objections and so I would discuss it with, with others and, and think about it myself and think about it, – it's like a kind of a map in your head. If someone says A, then you could potentially reply with B, C, or D. So it, it, it was a pretty intuitive thing for me, I think. When Jonathan and I continue our conversation, we'll hear about the contentious, though ultimately successful, efforts to reform New Zealand's blindness organizations – his two-time run for New Zealand's Parliament, and stories about what it's like to have progressive hearing loss as a blind person. Those things and more on Episode 5 of In the Arena, The Jonathan Mosin Story. I'm Glenn Gordon.